Uh, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And we're continuing our journey through some of the psal- uh, psalms, uh, through some of the parables of Jesus uh, before we get to Advent and celebrating his coming at Christmas. So this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 10. And there's also a children's translation or version on page 11. And as Mike said, we were anticipating being outside today. And so there are no slides or anything, so if you don't have a bulletin, you're going to want to get one of those. So if you, do, if you need one, you can raise your hand, and I'm sure some usher or somebody can get you one if you, if you need one. So boys and girls who are staying and not going to children's church, please make sure you have one, because we do have a children's version for you I will we'll be referring to. <clears throat> so here now, the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 15. You can please stay seated. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to condescend to us in speech, in text, that we might know and not just feel. So, Lord, we ask that even now you would reveal yourself to us by your Spirit here in this text, that we would see more of the beauty of Jesus and our own great need of him. We ask that you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this routine at bedtime in my house with our three younger children. I'm not sure when it started. Years and years ago, I'm not even sure who started it, but we do this thing where I put my hand on their chest, and one of us says it first, and the other one repeats it, you are my heart. It's a great little bedtime thing. Again, it, it just kind of shows how valuable that we are to each other. It kind of shows my children how much I love them, how, 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 how if, you'll, if you'll allow me to get all squishy and mushy as a Presbyterian, how they're, they're my treasures, and I want them to know that, that you are my heart. Maybe you can relate to that, to feeling that much affection towards a child or towards someone else, to, or, or maybe as a child, to receiving that kind of approval. Maybe, maybe you can't. I'm sorry. Maybe your relationship with your parents was complicated. (laughs) But in this text today, we're going to see that God treasures us, that we actually have the warrant to say it that emotively. God treasures us, that he spares no effort to come after us. He leaves no stone unturned to rescue us. In these parables today, Jesus shows us that God comes to us and he basically says, you are my heart. 
So we've been walking through these parables together, and we're, we're looking at the parables under the theme of enoughness, how in our modern world, so much of our culture, so much of our home life, of social media, of our work life, puts this great pressure on us to be enough, to either feel successful at work or to feel like we have the pro- properly curated life, that people aren't doing better than us, that we're doing okay. Just this idea of like, I can just, I'm enough. I'm okay for a little while. This sense of worth that we get that Jesus is actually addressing that very human need, that it's not just us. We may be the first generation to call it enoughness, but we're definitely not the first generation to feel it, and that Jesus is addressing this idea of enoughness. And so today we're going to see in these parables that we are treasure enough in God. We're going to see Jesus hanging with questionable people because God seeks and rescues the desperate. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When we realize that the lost and broken are God's treasure, we treasure them too. When we realize that the lost and the broken are God's treasure, we treasure them too. It helps us overcome the natural tendency of all people to kind of separate into us versus them. When we see that, no, God values them, and we stop thinking about them as them. So that gets us here. Let's look at God's treasures in the first couple of verses. So t- Jesus tells these stories because he is at a party with the religious leaders. He's at a party with the insta-famous, with the social media influencers of the day. And they looked down on people kind of like Jesus, and they definitely looked down on the people who were drawn to Jesus, the broken, the hurting, the compromised. You can hear their sarcasm in their voice, like, this man hangs out with sinners, You know, after 2,000 years of Christianity kind of shaping Western culture, we forget that valuing all people is not historically normal. It is not the default mode of humanity by any means. In Jesus' day in particular, an important rich man may feed the needy as a sign of his generosity, but he himself would not join them at table and eat with them. To do so assumed an equality. It assumed an acceptance. You're not supposed to associate with the other. And before we look down on them, our culture does this too. I think a really good example of this comes from a couple years ago. You may remember this incident. Back in 2019, the comedian talk show host Ellen DeGeneres was photographed at a Texas Rangers game sitting next to former Vice President George W. Bush. And in the photograph, they were just having, they were laughing. You could tell they were really enjoying each other's company. And Ellen got all sorts of flack for it. How could she, a feminist, a progressive, a lesbian, be sitting and smiling next to a a Republican? (laughs) He was the wrong tribe. He's the wrong kind of person. You don't associate with those types. Now, she made a very eloquent Defense. If you haven't heard this, I would actually encourage you to Google it. It's very eloquent defense. It went viral. But that she even had to do that shows that the cultural gatekeepers haven't changed much since verse 2. You better hang with the right people. You better be, stay with the right crowd or we will judge you. See, what happened is the people in Jesus' day, these religious leaders, they assumed that people like them, that their tribe, they were the righteous ones, and the other kind of people weren't. 
And so Jesus tells these stories to repudiate that whole mentality. There is no aloofness in Jesus. He does not share the Pharisees' fear of contamination from these people. So boys and girls who are still here, I know you probably don't know who Ellen DeGeneres is. She was the voice of Dory on Finding Nemo, if that helps. But I want you to make sure you're tracking with me here. So let's look on page 11. Let's look at your verse 2, boys and girls. Here, here's what Jesus is saying in a way that you can understand. It says this. It says, the popular kids, the ones who thought they were in charge, whined. Why is Jesus always hanging out with the losers? There, there are popular kids in school, aren't there, boys and girls? There are popular and unpopular kids, right? You want to know a secret? I wish I could sit here and tell you, oh, that all goes away when you're an adult. It doesn't. There are popular kids at work. There are popular kids at the gym. There are popular kids in traffic. (laughs) They're everywhere. And I want you to see here, boys and girls, that, that, that the popular kids made fun of Jesus, too. Because Jesus was friends with the uncool kids like me. Because God likes losers like me. See, Jesus shows us here that you don't have to be cool for God to love you. You don't have to be popular for God to value you. Jesus wants us to see that clearly. And this is completely revolutionary and world-changing. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian or not. This uncompromising posture of acceptance that Jesus demonstrates with his life is one of the ways that Jesus changed history. I've talked about this book before. I highly recommend it. Tom Holland wrote a book a couple years ago called Dominion. It's like thick, but if you, t- if you want, really want to understand how Christianity has changed the world, you need to read this book by Tom Holland called Dominion. And here's what makes it so good. Tom Holland doesn't believe any of it. He understands Christian theology better than a lot of people do, respects it, is a complete atheist. But he outlines exactly how Christianity has pretty much created Western culture. And when the book first came, came out, it was being panned by a lot of other historians. But this other famous atheistic historian read the book, and he actually gave it a super positive review. And here's what he said. So again, this is one atheist historian talking about another atheist historian's book. And check this out. It says this. It says, there is nothing at all self-evident about the equal intrinsic worth of all human beings. These values, which secular thinkers nowadays take for granted, were placed at the heart of the Western world by Christianity. Liberal humanist thought is a footnote to the Bible. Right? Again, that's one atheist reviewing what another atheist says about Christianity. And they're basically saying the short version, in case you heard all that, you're like, huh? They're saying Christianity invented the whole idea of human dignity, the whole idea of equal rights. Christianity gave that to the Western world. You're welcome. So if you're skeptical about Christianity, that's okay, but be an honest skeptic like these two atheists are and look at the facts. Or maybe you're still investigating Christianity. If if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself maybe a Christian, if it's important to you that outsiders be valued, that minorities be protected, that the poor and sick be helped, if you hold to those values... Even atheistic historians are recognizing those are Christian values. And this incident right here with Jesus is one of the places that Christianity gets those values. Jesus challenges the majority culture's assumption on who is valuable and who is not. And Jesus comes and says, no, God treasures all y'all, because he was Southern. 
especially outsiders, right? Especially the other, especially the morally compromised. God values those people. Those who consider themselves damaged goods, God treasures. See, this is world-changing because Christianity like this is not a bento box. You guys know what bento boxes are? I need, I need to see hands. Bento boxes? Okay, okay, for the rest of you, a bento box is just a way of packing your lunch where you get you, you can actually get separated compartments, so nothing ever mixes together. It's completely separated. You can go to a nice Asian restaurant, and you can get a big bento box for dinner, or you can pack your lunch this way. Okay, It's a great way to do it, and here's the thing about it. Nothing ever mixes, and that's not Christianity. Jesus shows us here, you can't have good theology and say, oh, God is the creator of all things, and hate your neighbor. No, Christianity is like a sponge absorbing water. It gets into every nook and cranny, and it affects everything if it's real especially how we treat those who are different from us, Jesus says shows what you actually believe about God. You know, recently I've been pretty deeply involved with uh, several older couples here um, who have children who are much more progressive than they are. Nothing wrong with that. But they've been struggling with how to talk to them. Maybe that's you. Or, or maybe, maybe you're trying to talk to your more progressive neighbors. And... And, and I want you to notice something if that's you. I want you to notice something here which might be able to help you. If Jesus here demonstrates that God values those on the outskirts of society, the questionable, the compromised, then we should too. If God values those people, then those who claim to be God's people should value those people as well. Those of you in relationships and conversations with people much more progressive than yourselves... Use Jesus here to help in this conversation. Jesus' determination here to include those the powerful wanted excluded is a strong foundation for values that some people have, such as tolerance or to be a loving society. That, that, that culture, that America that so many people dream about, Christianity actually offers tangible resources to get there much more so than the tribalism that attacked Ellen. If you value those things, you should want Christianity to be true. It gives you some power behind those convictions because God treasures people. Jesus says God treasures you. And to help you see that, Jesus tells us two stories of God's mission here. So Jesus tells the story of a lost sheep and a lost coin. He wants to bring home to us the reality of our lostness, that we need to be found. And he's talking to an audience of religious leaders who don't feel lost. These two stories are designed to tear down this performance idea that if we just achieve some sort of level of moral or social or religious success, if I can get to that level, God will accept me. I'm one of the in people with God, and I can rest. I can be enough. Jesus says, no, you're lost. But God is determined to find lost things way before we lost things think of seeking him because he's on a mission for us. So the first story, big flock, guy has all these sheep. The original hearers would have assumed a flock that large would either be the property of someone uber wealthy or it would be more like a community flock. I haven't seen these a lot here, but when I, as many of you know, I was uh, church planting in New England. And in New England, at the middle of every town, even big Boston itself, the middle of it is a thing called a common. 
And it started out hundreds of years ago as a community field. And what you would do is you would take your animals out of your barn or your little paddock at night, you would walk them to the communal common, and then you could go to work and there'd be someone there who would watch over the animals for you. That's kind of what's going on in this story. A flock that big would be like a community, a community flock of several people's stuff put together with one or two people put in charge of it for the day. And so what happens is this guy right here with community property, 1% of it is lost. So against all logic, against all common practice, against all common sense, against basic economics, he leaves the 99% untended and vulnerable to find the 1%. Because that one is that valuable to him. Jesus wants us to see that. This is one of those things that's so clearly from a different culture than us, isn't it? I mean, these are totally not our values. I mean, if, if this happened at, at the workplace, that guy's next performance evaluation is going to be rough, right? That's not how you care for someone's assets. See, but the force of the metaphor is these sheeps are stand-ins for people. And God is after people. He values people. Jesus is showing God's willingness to rescue his treasures because he values them that much. See, here's where Christianity can push back positively on our culture. I wish I'd come up with this. It's so brilliant, but I didn't. So I'm just gonna, I don't know. I can't remember which one of my friends said this, but a fellow pastor put it this way. He said this. He goes, it, you know, it's the shepherd's willingness to go after the one that gives the 99 their real security. If one is sacrificed in the name of the larger group, then each individual in that group is scared and insecure. You can think of cancel culture as that way. You better stay in the right lane. If you get out of the lane, you are cut off to make the group look good. But when the shepherd pays a high price to find the one, he tells the 99 they are of profound value too. That's Christianity. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God? I value you so much that I will go after you. Because God says, you are my treasures. You are my heart. And I'm on a mission to save you. That's why being missional is one of our four core values as a church. Because if God is on a mission to save people, his church should be as well. What's interesting is real shepherds, these guys are still around, you can talk to them, real shepherds today will tell you that sheep will run like crazy if they get away from the group. They will just run and run and run until they are exhausted, and then they'll fall over. Until they see you coming. Then they get up and they run again. So what you have to do, these shepherds say, is you have to actually kind of flank them. You have to sneak up on their blind side, pounce on them, tie them up, and then drag or carry them back to the flock. It's kind of like raising a toddler, right? So... <laughs> Or, or maybe even worse, right, Allie, are you here? It's like kind of running a junior high ministry, isn't it? Yeah. So, see, th th that Jesus uses this metaphor, it means that humanity is running away from God as much as it can until it exhausts itself and then it runs some more. But God in his grace seeks after us to pursue us, to rescue us. See, that's one of the things, because they knew sheep acted that way, they would bring all of that into this metaphor that we miss when Jesus says this. It's crazy. They're saying, wait, you're saying that God would actually run after us like we have to chase a stubborn sheep? God would do that to us? That was not their picture of God. And then don't you love how once the rescuer has the sheep, 
He's happy. He's rejoicing. He returns to the whole flock, to the community, and they all rejoice together that everything is rescued. Again, boys and girls, I know you haven't watched a lot of sheep. And students, if you're here, I want, I want to make sure you're tracking with me. So let's look at your verse 4 through 6. Make sure you guys understand what Jesus is trying to say here. He says this. What if you had a bag full of your friends' and family's phones, but you realized you lost your mom's phone? Wouldn't you leave that bag of phones and look everywhere to find that one phone? And when you did find it, wouldn't you hold it up in the air shouting for joy? Then you'd pick up the bag and return all the phones laughing and telling the story of how you lost and then found that one phone. Boys and girls here, students, you ever lost something important and then found it? That's a good time, isn't it, right? You start rejoicing. It's an amazing feeling. Yes, you're so happy. The, the burden, the fear has been gone. This is going to be okay. Jesus says here, God is that happy when he rescues you because you're that valuable. And to make sure we really get it, Jesus then talks about lost money, which we can all relate to, right? Imagine, especially kids, imagine if you lost a $100 bill in your room, right? It would look like hurricane child came through. You tear that room up looking for that 100 bucks, right? Because it's so valuable. And when it's found, what do you do? Yes! Jesus says, God is that happy and rejoiceful when sinners repent and come to him. Here's where we have to wrestle, all of us, especially those of us in church world. Jesus says God is on a quest for us. He says that we are like lost sheep or we're like a lost coin, but what if we don't feel particularly lost? Or maybe you're like, I, I, I'm well aware of my evil things. Okay, good. What about our neighbors? Do our neighbors often feel lost? Mine don't. And many of you with older kids, like I talked about before, you've confessed that one of the problems you're having talking to your kids, your adult kids, is that they don't feel lost. They're living completely different lifestyles, what you raise them to be, and they're happy, and they seem content, and they, they're, why aren't they unhappy? <clears throat> if you're here, and you're still investigating Christianity, you have to answer this out loud, but I'm going to ask you, do you feel lost? Usually the answer is no. There was an article uh, Pre-COVID, isn't that crazy that that's now we get to now say that and that means something? <laughs> Pre-COVID, in a, in a magazine called The Christian Century, which in case you're not familiar, it's, it's a more mainline, progressive, liberal Christian magazine. So you have, if, if evangelicals are way over here on the spectrum, this magazine is way over here on the spectrum. So in this article, it was called How I Learned to Love the Doctrine of Total Depravity. The author is an Episcopal priest, and she admits that her progressive theology cannot make sense of the evil in the world. Her theology teaches that humans are basically good, but that we just need some guidance and some nudging in the right direction. And she writes this article because she's completely just flabbergasted at the lack of progress culture makes. And she says this, quote, Of course the world is full of evil and suffering. Of course people are unjust and cruel to one another. Of course I feel like a complete inadequate Christian. Of course, I feel paralyzed by despair and shame. It's because of total depravity. And she sums it up with this, which is on your front cover. I would encourage you to turn there. Page two at the very bottom, that last quote. Here's what she says. No matter what I do or how hard I try to be righteous, 
The world spins me to my knees at every turn with more evidence of cruelty, catastrophe, and waste. I do not feel theologically equipped to handle the enormous weight of evil I see in the world. In other words, she has had to come to grips with humanity's lostness and with her own lostness. Maybe that resonates with you. Maybe it doesn't. But I've encouraged you to open your eyes that more and more artists, philosophers, even pundits are recognizing that free of external constraints, human beings do terrible things to each other. That's, that's being lost. And in our lostness, Jesus comes and he presents a revolutionary view of a God who thinks lost humans are so valuable that he's on a mission to rescue them. That God wants to alleviate your lostness here and now and then usher in a world that works one day, someday. But until then, he treasures you. He seeks you out. And as we see next, God rejoices over your rescue and healing. And we'll end with this, with God's joy. I want to zoom in on verse 7 and verse 10. So if you want to turn there on page 10 in your bulletin, I want to zoom in to those where Jesus says this. Verse 7, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then down to verse 10, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you see this picture of God's joy that Jesus is presenting? Uh, Of the rejoicing that takes place over a person, a treasure that was lost being brought into the family. Is that your view of God? A rejoicing, joyful rescuer. Because that's who Jesus thinks God is. I mean, the rabbis of Jesus' day all agreed that God welcomed the faithful, but the idea that he sought after sinners, that he took the initiative while they were lost, that was unheard of in Jesus' day. That's why the religious and cultural leaders here at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 15 are so smug. They were secure that God was on their side, that they were in with God. They did not see themselves as broken or lost. But all these losers around Jesus, they saw themselves as lost. They hung on Jesus' every word. They were amazed that God valued them enough to send rescue. See, because God rescues God treasures his people. And when he gets those things that were lost, he rejoices. You see, Christianity presents the idea of a happy God, not a somber God. Even if you're not a church person, it feels odd to say happy God, doesn't it? It feels superficial. It feels puerile, immature, not serious, doesn't it? Why is that? I wonder if it's because our culture is so performance-based that so much of our worth as people is based on believing the right things and doing the right things and staying in your tribe to be valuable that we never get to rest and be happy. And Anybody who's too happy obviously isn't taking life seriously enough. So obviously God must take life very seriously. He must not be happy. See, but Jesus here says, no, Christianity, myself, I offer you a unique connection to a happy God a creator God who rejoices over you. I wonder if one of the other reasons we have a hard time thinking of happy God is because, let's be candid, we don't often rejoice in ourselves, do we? 
There are very few of us that look in the mirror, physically or metaphorically, and go, awesome. Right? (laughs) Yeah. And so the idea that anybody else would rejoice in us, much less the creator who really knows us would rejoice in us, it's overwhelming. It's absurd. Everything in us says, no, that can't be true. And if that's you, you're tasting your lostness. Turn back to your creator and embrace him as he offers you rescue in the gospel of Jesus. He will rejoice over you and you will be rescued. And then you'll rejoice in him. That's a big promise. How can we rest in such a promise? Because in the incarnation, when Jesus Christ became flesh himself, God becoming human in Jesus. It's reframed. That whole thing is reframed by these stories. Both the shepherd looking for the sheep and the woman looking for the coin, they plunged into the rescue of their treasure. And so too, the incarnation is God plunging into our reality, into our lostness to rescue his treasures. He enters into the dungeon with us to break the chains and set us free. The message that God becomes human, that in joy he let himself be bound and killed on the cross so that we could be unbound and live in him, that he was raised from the dead for us so that we could all rejoice in him together, that gospel changes us when it becomes real. Perhaps in this moment, That gospel has become a new reality in your heart. That you actually do believe that Jesus died for you because God wants to rescue you. And if that's you, own your lostness. Stop running. Repent and believe the gospel. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and God will rejoice over you and you will hear in those silent moments in your heart, you are my treasure. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we come to your parables like this that show us this immense picture of you. Lord, and I know I, for one, it's hard to believe that you're this happy, that you're this active in seeking out ugly, lost things. And that you joyfully rejoice, throw your hands up in triumph when a sinner repents. Oh Lord, would you help my unbelief? Would you help us all by your spirit to believe your good news in Jesus Christ? And we pray, Lord, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, that he has been portrayed as crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you yourself, Lord, would do your work of bringing many to your kingdom. Even now, Father, would you cause us to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, I love getting to come to the table afterward. Ah, so this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to Him to come. This is a party where He wants to rejoice together with us. 
This is one of those times we get to come where Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he invites us to come into his presence to rejoice with him. Thanksgiving is coming up in a couple weeks. Think of how fun that meal is after you've done all the cooking, right? It's just so good to be together to feast with your loved ones. That's what communion is a foretaste of every time we take it, of the ultimate feast that we get to have with Jesus. Oh, if, if, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel, this is your birthright. Come, partake of this. If you haven't yet come to a place where you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, let these elements pass you by. But watch as the Lord serves his people. And ask. Ask that he would show you what's going on here. That he would show you your lostness. That he would show you his rescue. And who knows, perhaps next time you're in the presence of communion, you can rejoice to be one of God's children and, and feast with him. A couple of housekeeping items first before we do the rest of it. Uh, because we were going to be outside, we have these um, little packets. The first layer you take off, and there's a wafer in there. And then there's a second thing you take off to get to the juice underneath. Okay? Um, this is not gluten, allergy stuff at all. If that's an issue for you, we have some things up here. Okay? And you can, if you want to come forward, you can grab those. Or if you want to stay in your seat, we can bring those to you. The way we do communion here, we ask people to come forward as family groups. Even if your children do not take communion, bring them up so that we, they can see what's happening here. Uh, eventually, we want to start praying together as families up here. We're not going to do that yet but please come together as a family group. If you don't want to come forward, or if you're physically unable, if it's a hardship, one of our elders will be walking around. Just raise your hand, and he will come to you to serve you communion. Okay? And I'm going to ask our service to go ahead and come forward. So on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take, eat, and remember. In the same manner, after dinner, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this sacrament, Lord, where you come to us in the reality of the flesh and blood of Jesus, where you remind us of the price that was paid for our salvation, that Jesus' body was broken, that his blood was shed, that we could be rescued. We pray, Lord, that as we partake of his flesh and blood, that you would give us strength, Lord, for the journey as we seek to live as your children. We pray, Lord, that you would draw us closer even now in these moments, that we might taste and see that you are good. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, so as the men are up here holding the elements, please come forward together as a family. If you can't come forward, raise your hand and one of our elders will serve you. And if you need the allergy-free stuff, we have some here as well.